Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 72. So much to talk about this week. It's uh, the hot button issue of the last couple of years, of course, Syria, everything that's uh, happening there, all of the talk, all of the debate. I want to get into some of the really specific issues uh, that I think are of central importance. I have an amazing, amazing guest on the line to be able to do that. But before I can get to that, let me do my usual song and dance for Counterpunch. Uh, there are so few places that you can really trust anymore to give you the kind of incisive analysis from the left that we really require in what I think are relatively confusing times politically. I mean, the U.S. political scene, the international geopolitical scene, certainly what's happening in Syria, in the greater Middle East, but also all over the world. Uh, And I think that in times like that, we need sites like Counterpunch, magazines like Counterpunch to provide that sort of signpost in the wilderness. So if you agree with me about the value of, of Counterpunch and of alternative media, think about getting a subscription to the print magazine. It's an excellent way to support financially the Counterpunch project, and you get something great out of it. You know, I, I, I love having the magazine laying around my house. I have two issues here uh, in my little office. I have a couple issues by the toilet you know all 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 the important places to read uh about political matters so uh consider that of course you can also donate to counterpunch via paypal via the other features you could pick up the phone and call uh becky and the rest of the team in uh, california and, and and get your donation in that way and then of course you can support this show giving us positive reviews on itunes spreading it around to your friends your neighbors your colleagues your enemies your roommates your former roommates, their former roommates, as many people as you can. Um, I think that it's important to bring this show to many people because, look, frankly, uh, I think that there are so many podcasts out there, but a lot of them are heavy on ads and light on analysis, political analysis, hardcore content. That's what I'm trying to bring. Hopefully you're enjoying that. Anyway, too long for me to do that introduction. Let me turn to my uh, guest this week. I'm so happy to uh, welcome uh, Dr. Hojin Aziz onto the program. Uh, She is a Kurdish feminist, Kurdish scholar, working currently in Kobani. She is a PhD in political science and international relations, focusing on women's rights, and advocating for the rights of refugees. Uh, As I said, she's currently working in Kobani uh, in uh, the Kurdish territory in Syria. You can find her work, uh, her blog on Facebook at the Middle Eastern Feminist, very important page to be following. You can also follow her on Twitter at H-A-W underscore Kurdy, that's K-U-R-D-Y. Hojin, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thank you very much for having me, Eric. It's an absolute pleasure. Uh, the pleasure indeed is all mine. I'm so happy to have you on the show and to be speaking from Syria uh, with a very good connection so far. So I'm very happy about that. Um, anyway, <laughs> I want to start with some of the, um, you know, I-, I guess what we could say is the real hot button issue within the context of Syria right now. And that is, of course, Aleppo. Uh, what's happened to Aleppo? Uh, you know, you're reading the Western media. Aleppo has fallen. You're reading Russia. 
Russian media, Aleppo has been liberated. There's competing narratives, and that's something that uh, you've written about, actually, rather recently. There was an excellent Facebook post that you did a while back. I believe now it's in an article uh, entitled Aleppo, A Tale of Three Cities. Can you can, can we start there and, and tell us a little bit about sort of the main argument in that article and why you felt it was so important to write that? Oh, thanks, Eric. Um, I think there's been a lot of confusion and significant amounts of discussion about what is going on in Aleppo. There's a lot of discussion from Western media uh, who are relying on various dubious um, sources in Aleppo. Um, and of course, there's the Assad regime and the Russian-led media who are proposing alternatives as to what is actually the reality on, on the ground. And I think uh, people are really confused. People on the left are very confused. People want to know if there are massacres happening. There's so many horrifying images that are emerging from Aleppo. And it's very difficult to know who is who and what is being done and who is basically slaughtering and murdering whom. So the situation is very complex. I think um, I would like to preface uh, this discussion firstly by saying that I'm actually not in Aleppo and I have not been in Aleppo. So therefore, I'm obviously speaking from a pre uh, position of extreme privilege. Um, and uh, I am in Syria, but I'm sitting in a place where I'm extremely safe and secure relative to the people who are currently in Aleppo. So I, I would like to preface that uh, and note strongly my privileges in relation to this discussion. I think what is happening at the moment, uh, there was a very, very um, prominent video by a woman, a Canadian journalist and a human rights activist called Eva Bartlett, which basically went viral. And uh, what led me to write this article was that I was very concerned because suddenly she exploded um, across the scene, social media, internet, everywhere, YouTube, and everybody was uh, applauding her. Everybody was advocating the opinion that she was proposing, which was very problematic because she was explicitly proposing the fact that the people in Syria, Syrians, were uh, unequivocally and explicitly supportive of the Assad regime. Now, this is very problematic because um, almost everybody knows that the Assad regime was extremely violent, extremely, extremely brutal towards the people of Syria. And this obviously was the reason that led to the, to the, um, to the civil conflict and to the uprisings, uh, because people were extremely unhappy with the current, with the, with the political situation during that time. So when she advocated that people were collectively or largely uh, supportive of the Assad regime, that, this raised a lot of questions for me because obviously in the north we are not supportive of the Assad regime, we are not supportive of the violent policies and ethnic cleansing policies that were implemented towards not only the Kurdish in the north but other minorities such as the Christian community, uh, the Armenian community here, the Yazidi community here and so on. So I decided to actually write a little bit about it based on my experience of being here and speaking to, to some of the people here and having access to some of the refugees in the camps here in Zazira Canton and in Kobani Canton. So my concern was that it's very difficult when we view one particular person as an expert, especially when that person is an outsider, a Canadian woman, who comes out and, and expresses an opinion and says, I know exactly what is going on in Aleppo. Actually, she doesn't. She herself is part of this propaganda machinery, which is working against the interests of the people of Aleppo. At the core of it is that the people of Aleppo are suffering. There are civilians who are in extremely precarious position. And they are basically caught, uh, caught up in the crossfire between the Assad regime, which is extremely brutal, and some of the rebel groups who are even more brutal. So the conflict is very, very, very difficult. There are in, the brut in the rebel um, group, if that's what you want to call it, some people like to call them terrorists. Let's, for the sake of argument, use the word rebel. rebel. 
um, you know, there are a lot of different terrorist groups and organizations which are just as violent as, as ISIS. And as we know, we've spread significant amount of material, seen significant amount of horrifying material about the brutality, brutality of ISIS. So it's very, very problematic that the Western media is saying either A, that all of the brutality and violence is as as perpetuated, or someone like Eva Bartlett who's saying, no, it's actually the opposite. Everything is actually the rebels. Everybody wants Assad back in power. It's actually neither of these arguments. Neither of these are alternatives that would bring about democracy and safety and peace and security to the people of Aleppo and to the people of Syria collectively. Both are perpetuating their own violent policies for their own personal agendas. So this was very problematic. And of course, this is very emotional for me because I am in the camps and I'm dealing with some of the people who have escaped from Aleppo. Um, and I wanted to write something that would reflect a little bit more reality based on my experiences. Now, I don't claim to be an expert in this, in this area, despite the fact that I have a PhD in political science, because I think it's very difficult to determine exactly what's going on. Even the people in Aleppo don't exactly know what's going on because the neighborhoods are, the neighborhoods are very much divided. For example, we have sections which are controlled by the Assad regime, and often these are the areas which are very well kept. For instance, and the Assad regime is trying to demonstrate to the Western world that the people in my area are very well kept, they're taken care of, and they're usually the images where you, you see people cheering very loudly for Assad. Uh, on the other hand, we have other images of, of Aleppo, which is the uh, basically extremely war-shattered um, you know, buildings and streets. So it's very it's horrifying images of extreme levels of destruction. And these are the rebel-held and controlled areas. Now, of course, in the middle of this, and a discussion which is rarely ever had, uh, hardly ever had, is the Sheikh Maqsud area, which is a Kurdish-dominated area controlled by the Kurdish Yafaga and the Yafaja forces. So we've got all of these different groups. Everybody's got their own interests. So what is going on and who is who? Well, often when the Western media speaks about these rebels, often the discussion is that they're seen as moderate rebels which is actually technically not true. Many of the rebels, well, not all of them, are actually foreign fighters who have come from places like Palestine, come from places like Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Iraq, and so on, to participate in this so-called liberation of, of Syria. But most of them actually have very Islamist um, Islamist agendas and intend on bringing about a system very similar to what ISIS wants to implement, which is something largely rejected by the people of Syria. The people of Syria wanted a democratic system, a system where they could live freely with all of their different ethnic and religious groups, but live freely and democratically with one another. For example, some of these so-called rebel, you know, modern rebels are groups such as Nuruddin Zenki group. Nuruddin Zenki were the group that publicly and horrifyingly published a video where they were beheading a 12-year-old boy by the name of Abdullah Issa. Um, and his prime was supporting the regime. Um, and uh, there are other groups such as Jabhat Fatah al-Sham. Uh, they were previously al-Nusra. They only changed their name to this other group because during this process of conflict in Aleppo, um, the United States and some of the allied countries were supporting rebels, but they were specifically targeting this, this particular group. So they decided to publicly come out and say, no, we're not al-Nusra anymore. We are now called Jabhat Fatah al-Sham but they still have the same policies. They, there's absolutely no difference. There are other groups such as racial Islam and, and so on. Some of, these, some of these groups have been extremely violent and have practiced extreme violence towards innocent civilians of Aleppo. So basically the people, of, the civilians are caught up between these two groups. Of course there are civilians who are supporting either the rebels and there are civilians who are supporting the Assad regime. There's no denying that either group, both groups have significant amounts of support. Both want a different 
vision of what you know, a different vision of the kind of identity that Syria can propose for these people. But the problem is all of these processes are coming about as a result of extreme violence, as a result of extreme exclusion of particular identities that do not fit these um, idealist perspectives they want to implement. So it's very, very problematic. Um, I'm not sure if I've captured the, the scope or the heart of the article that I've written. Um, I think another problem is that um, uh, there's a lot of uh, communication within Western media towards some of these alleged activists. Now, first of all, I'm not saying that all of these activists who are coming out and producing videos on Twitter and active on Twitter and so on are, are allied with it. Some of them are genuine activists and some of them are genuinely trying to support uh, the liberation of people in Aleppo from either the regime or from the, from, from the rebels. But there are some who have been extremely problematic. Um, one of these uh, individuals has been a seven-year-old girl uh, by the name of Bana. I'm sure you've seen videos and, and images of her. She was very, very famous um, on Twitter. Um, she was helping, she was basically um, tweeting with the help of her mother. So uh, Bana was basically saying that uh, she was pro proposing the idea that the majority of the, the people was effort perpetuated or imposed. Um, unfortunately, Bana has uh, had a few photos published also on social media where she's been seen with and um, in the company as well as her family in the company of um, of the terrorist organization that I mentioned before, Nuruddin Zanki Group, who were the ones going around behaving to all old children. And yet here's this other seven-year-old girl being used as a propaganda tool by some of these terrorist organizations to demonstrate the brutality and the violence of the Assad. Now, there is no denying that the Assad regime is extremely, extremely violent. There's no denying it. But what is problematic is when only one side of the argument is proposed and the violence and the brutality of the rebel groups and some of these terrorist organizations is being silenced for the purpose of producing a particular view of what's happening in Syria. I think um, I should also preface that as a Kurd and being here helping with the civilian side of things, I've also been influenced by the democratic practices that have been happening here. Um, in, my, in my personal opinion, having lived here for over a year or so, having seen some of the conflicts, having um, learned about some of the culture of the people living here, um, and trying to follow exactly what is going on in Syria with all of the complex different issues and identity problems and ethnic and religious issues. Um, what I understand is what the Assad regime is proposing is not an alternative. It doesn't produce a democratic ideal. Now, there are a lot on the left, a lot of groups on the left, who consider themselves anti-imperialist and explicitly support Assad. This is very, very problematic because the Assad regime was extremely violent towards its own people. It was extremely violent towards the Syrian people. It has consistently used barrel bombs and all kinds of violent measures to destroy and kill and silence the people and the people of Syria. Now, I don't think that you can consider genuinely consider yourself leftist and anti-imperialist and genuinely support Assad. I think there are ideologically conflicting views here. But unfortunately, on the left, there are quite a few, a very large segment within the left that sees uh, anti-imperialism as being explicitly meaning that they they support Assad. So they're against the U.S. imperialism, they're against Western imperialism. So therefore, the solution is to support Assad violence and brutality. I've engaged in some discussions with some of these people, and they're extremely, extremely uh, determined to silence any voices that says Assad is violent that the Assad regime is going around murdering and killing people. They view and, and are deeply emotionally connected to perpetuating the idea that Assad is a liberator. Assad is a true representation of the people of, of Syria. And keep in mind, I'm not saying that Assad doesn't have support within Syria. He does. But the system and the regime that he has is extremely, extremely undemocratic. 
Now, the alternative is obviously people think that if they support the Syrian opposition, which also contains these rebel terrorist groups, uh, that's the alternative. I don't think that's also the alternative, because the alternative to that is that it's an Islamist Salafist representation of, of what they want Syria to be. And this is also another solution, because many people do not want to live under this system. Many people know that these rebel groups and terrorist groups are extremely violent, extremely, extremely brutal to the level of ISIS and even surpassing the level of ISIS. Um, so this is very, very problematic. I think the alternative is we want a democratic Syria. What is happening in North Syria is perhaps a viable solution. Of course, I'm saying perhaps because the people of Syria need to accept this democratic confederal system. Of course, you know, this needs to be an organic process. It needs to be something that is proposed to the people and something that needs to be, you know, engaged. The people need to engage in a lot of dialogue and discussion. But what's happening here in North Syria, it's, um, it's an extreme radical revolutionary situation yeah and I think if we can manage to see happening in the rest of Syria we can truly definitely be an example of an alternative a, a, a democratic alternative a, a an alternative where women are free people can can live really with their different different ethnic and religious groups and more than that we can be a society that is you know basically we're environmentalists we believe in ecological sustainability we believe in our connection with the land and protecting that I don't know if I've spoken no. for too long. No, 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 <laughs> Just no. Just tell me to shut up. <laughs> no, no, that was excellent. You covered so many different points. I want to hold off on conversation about Rojava for, for now okay. uh, to the second okay. half of our conversation because okay. that really needs to, I think, be unpacked in detail because there's so much okay. to discuss there. But uh, coming back to the, the, the issue of Aleppo and specifically this question of competing narratives, I think that that is really a fundamental point to discuss. Um, and I've mentioned it on this show with previous guests because in fact both of the pictures that you get whether it's from the western media or from the non-western media be it russian media iranian media or what have you um both of them are in many ways uh one-dimensional that is to say there are definitely elements of truth in on both sides in terms of the debate but neither one of them I, well I, I, maybe another way of saying it both of them are actually rather disingenuous in other words they are politically motivated narratives that really have very little relation to actual reality. So, um, you know, that's, I think, one of the key issues that the left in general needs to take out of this. How do we read international situations like this, particularly ones where one side claims to be the representation of, quote-unquote, capital R, revolution, and the other side uh, claims to be the defenders of, quote-unquote, sovereignty and uh, multiculturalism. So as somebody on the left, you're supposed to sit there and say, well, which side am I to choose? And I think the argument that you're making is really you shouldn't be choosing either side, but developing a new and better system, one that really rejects both. I think that's exactly what I'm trying to say. I think, uh, you know, the confusion is uh, continuing across the international community on the left in relation to who to support, which narrative to believe, which is true. But I think it's become very clear that the Russian-led or the Iranian-led narratives have their own particular agendas and their whole, have their own views about the kind of society, the kind of state and regime that they want Syria to be. And, of course, Assad is aligned with that view. The alternative is that, um, you know, the rebel side one, which is also something that is not viable and is not something that promotes democracy and liberation of different ethnic and religious groups and views and identities. Another side, which is rarely ever discussed, is the influence of Turkey and Turkish invasion of Syria, 
and what Turkey is actually currently doing in areas such as what we're trying to do in relation to takeover of Kibbit or its invasion of Jarablus. So it's very, very complicated. I think we should be very wary of any view that is expliciting unequivocally one side of the story. So going back to Eva Abatlet, when she says unequivocally without any any prefaces that the people of Syria are supportive of Assad. This is very, very problematic and should set off alarm bells. Now, of course, I'm sitting here and of course I have my own agenda. I'm saying that we believe that the democratic system here in Rojava, in North Syria, is the ideal solution or perhaps an alternative. Now, this needs to be prefaced with, with all of the privileges and all of the personal agendas of different people who are speaking. But I think it's very problematic when we take one narrative as the absolute truth. And we should be very, very, um, I, we should question this. We should be very skeptical of this. I think le the left needs to be aware that they shouldn't re really take anything that the Western media says. I mean, we should take, take everything that the Western media says with a grain of salt at this stage, anything that is said about Syria. I think there are activists on the ground. There are people who have been here that have our genuine voices. But if you find that anyone is advocating for a particular side, such as only, only, the Syria, only these, uh, the rebels are the alternative, only the Syrian uh, opposition is the alternative, only the Assad regime is the alternative, or the solution to this problem, then you should be very wary of this. I think we should remain very, very skeptical. Yeah, I think I was just going to say, I think one of the one of the issues as speaking as somebody on the left in the United States, one of the issues is that uh, for 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 many of us, myself included, um, you know, when when we see a war developing in the United States and U.S. intelligence funneling arms to one side of that war, it's almost as if, you know, we've heard this story before. We remember the U.S. activities in Latin America in the 1980s. We remember yep. the U.S. activities in Afghanistan in the late 70s and early 80s. We've seen this played out over and over and over again. So there is an instinctive desire to, uh, you know, not only reject what the U.S. is doing, but to defend the side that is being targeted. And in this case, the side being targeted by the U.S. is the regime of Bashar al-Assad. So there is yep. there is an, an instinctive tendency to want to defend that government at, at a time when it is being targeted. And I perfectly understand that. And I've been in that position exactly myself. Uh, in, in, in many ways uh, saying things very much in defense of Assad as he was attacked by the U.S. and many other actors. However, there is that problematic aspect of this because the deeper you get into that, the more time you spend defending one side yep. against the other side, the easier it is to begin to ignore the reality that is taking place mm -hmm. around you. And so that's one of the difficulties is to be able to step back and to take not only the lens with which your viewing the conflict, but to try to understand how people in the country and around the world are using different lenses to understand it. I think, Eric, there's a very important distinction that needs to be made here. And the distinction is that, you know, there's Syria and the people of Syria, and then there's the regime and Assad regime. So when we are against European or Western or American imperialism and, uh, you know, influence and, you know, I mean, we've we all saw what happened in Iraq in 2003 and since then. I mean, ISIS is a, a byproduct of these, these ignorant policies that were implemented in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. So we've seen this and we are extremely wary and we should be wary of this. But the problem is when we see, you know, we see this imperialism as being against the Assad regime, we should actually be for the Syrian people. There's a very, very very important distinction that needs to be made here and we need to actually see that u.s imperialism let's say u.s imperialism um is just as violent as the Assad regime for the people of, of 
area. This yeah. is an important discussion. Yeah. I, I agree, you know, and one of the one of the key aspects of that discussion, and you used the phrase, and I, I try to avoid it just because I also think that it's problematic, is the phrase, the Syrian people, you know, because who exactly are the Syrian people, and why would anybody assume that when we say, well, we're on the side of the Syrian people, but the Syrian people aren't all on the same side, and that's part, that that's the point, is that's... that you, you can't, you know, the difficulty in talking about Syria, especially from the outside, is that when somebody says, well, you you know, I'm 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 in defense of the Syrian people. Well, which Syrian people? That's a really really good question. Which Syrian people? The truth is, people are very fragmented. Yeah. First of all, again, let's look at who we are discussing. Who are the alternatives and who are available to us as possible alternatives and leaders of this, you know, of, of Syria and a democratic, peaceful Syria? We've got Assad on one hand. We've got the Syrian opposition on the one hand, which also contains the rebel terrorist groups and organizations, and then you've got the Kurds in the north, uh, or the North Syrian federal system up in the north. Now, the problem is that, obviously, each of these groups contains significant amounts of support. There's a lot of issues of xenophobia involved. There's a lot of issues of racism between Arab Kurdish communities and between, you know, the Sunnis and Shiites and between other ethnic and religious groups. So it's very, very complex, and it's extremely difficult to determine who to support. I think at the end of the day, we need to see that all of these conflicts are obviously having a very, very negative detrimental impact. But in my view, Assad and the rebel groups are having the most negative impact because you can see the alternative. What's happening in Aleppo is very, very clear. What's happening is the alternative. We have places in the north, such as Mandesh, which is an entirely Arab city, or predominantly Arab city, which has been liberated. Now, this Arab city is now in the process of developing their own self-governing processes. They are, they are now a, a, an independent canton. They're de de developing people's houses. They're developing women's houses and implementing democratic and gender liberation policies. So the point is that it doesn't matter where we are speaking about the Syrian people. When an, a viable alternative is provided, when there's safety and security, people will always choose democratic practices and policies over the kind of violence that we are seeing in a place like Aleppo. Now, I don't claim to have all of the solutions. The situation is extremely difficult and complex and the solution ultimately needs to be one that the Syrian people themselves decide. It cannot be one imposed from the outside. It cannot be one that US imperialism decides through guns and through which rebel groups uh, that it supplies most weapons with. The solution needs to be a peaceful one. A solution needs to be evolved, produced through all of the sides coming together. Now actually, interestingly enough, overnight there was the Syrian ceasefire that was implemented and led by the Turkish government and the Russian government to the exclusion of the United States, which has caused some conflict over, over there towards you guys. Um, but in this process, many of the different terrorist groups have been included um, in the ceasefire, with the exception of actually two, uh, two terrorists, two particular groups. One group that has been excluded in the ceasefire is ISIS, uh, which is fair enough because ISIS is causing significant amount of problems. And another group that has been excluded is actually the Kurdish Yepaga. So that really creates a lot of questions about um, who is actually trying to implement a ceasefire, what kind of ceasefire are we trying to implement, and what kind of a ceasefire are we actually talking about when uh, a significant seg segment of the community within Syria is excluded. Well, look, so, the, 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 uh, reality is, the reality is Turkey has been waging a war on the Kurds, literally, seemingly from time immemorial, and within the context of the war in <laughs> yes. Syria, they've been using any yeah. pretext to bomb the Kurds, uh, to attack not only Kurds inside of Turkey, but Kurds in the, inside of Syria as well. And so yeah. I think it's it probably shouldn't come as any surprise to anybody that a Turkish-led initiative 
negotiated for a ceasefire would allow them the cover, you know, the political capital to be able to continue to wage their war against the Kurds. And let's be frank about it. Turkey is in in many ways trying to exterminate the Kurds to the extent that they can. Yes, I agree with you. And this is this is the ultimate problem. The solution needs to be an internal one. Unfortunately, if we had, you know, international institutions and bodies like the United States, uh, sorry, United Nations, which were actually, if they were actually functioning and actually doing the job that they were meant to be, perhaps we could have had some of these international institutions overseeing this process. But of course, they're completely defunct and completely useless and completely irrelevant to this process. But it's problematic when you have Turkey on the one side and Russia on the other side producing some sort of a ceasefire. A ceasefire which is very selective, a ceasefire which um, is can barely be called a ceasefire. A ceasefire that gives the rebels and terrorist groups an opportunity to basically regroup and rearm themselves and engage in, in the whole process of the conflict again. But, but so, you know what's interesting about that, Hojin, is that is that on the one hand, yes, of course, it's completely uh, uh, absurd that, that Turkey and Russia are really the two negotiating partners negotiating over yep. Syria. At the same time, though, it does make some sense because Turkey really has been, in many ways, the main con do it for the weapons and for the money that's been going to the rebel side for for a number of years now and on the other side of course Russia is the main engine backing the Syrian Arab army and the Assad government and so on the one hand it's unreasonable and unfair on the other hand it makes sense at least politically to some degree it makes sense but because of their particular agendas I don't think that these ceasefires really going to have much of an influence over the long term I agree like I said it's basically just given a breathing space to some of the different groups and organizations. And through the actual structure of the ceasefire, uh, Turkey has given him, themselves basically carte blanche to continue to kill and murder the Yepaga, who are going to continue resisting these kind of violent policies. They have a right to resist and they will resist. So I think it's going to be very, very problematic. I think the solution needs to be one where there are various other um, institutions, various other groups, various other human rights organizations, a combination of different state and NGO related solutions, one that requires actually monitoring the whole process, one that requires being very careful about who is included and who is excluded. I think that this ceasefire is just, um, it makes a mockery of the, the possibility of what could be. Again, I repeat that it's very important that any sort of a solution needs to come internally with the different groups and organizations. Fair enough, okay, we are sitting here in Syria and, and let's say for argument's sake, that we have a group of rebels who are terrorists, who are extremely violent, and they have their view. And unfortunately, what we've seen in places like Iraq and Afghanistan is that we can't exclude these groups. We need to engage in dialogue with them. And unfortunately, they need to be part of the process of, of discussion and dialogue. If not, if they are excluded, they're just going to basically go around engaging in significant amounts of violence and causing more havoc. So let's bring these groups and organizations together. Let's bring the Assad regime together. Let's bring the different rebel groups or the Syrian opposition force, which does contain some political parties and groups and organizations that do genuinely want democracy, that do genuinely want peace, but whose arguments and whose aspirations have been subverted by some of these foreign fighters of foreign organizations and groups, these rebels. Uh, and let's bring the Yepag or the representations here in Rojava together and let's have some sort of a discussion between three groups. We've had in the previous Geneva discussions, for instance, particular groups such as the Kurds excluded. And this doesn't produce genuine organic progress. You need to include everybody. If you're going to group the, include the terrorists, then include the Kurds as well. If you're going to include the Kurds and the, and the terrorists or the rebels, then include Assad as well. There needs to be genuine discussions between the people who actually are holding the guns. Okay. Yeah. It needs to be a discussion with 
one of the issues in 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 having those negotiations, and this has come out repeatedly, Geneva one, Geneva two, uh, this has happened over yep. and over again, is that a lot of these groups uh, on the on the rebel side. I'm not really talking so much about the uh, indigenous Syrian groups so much as the foreign uh, jihadi type groups. Uh, they're backed by mm-hmm. Qatar, Saudi Arabia, you know, yep. other countries in the region who have their particular agendas and obviously want to see regime change brought to Syria. So there is this question of, um, are you really actually engaging in negotiation with these groups or are you really just dealing with a proxy for a foreign state? And, and, and that's part of the problem here is that essentially the, the proxy nature of this war makes any negotiation process rather complicated and makes it really an international or, or even a global issue. It's definitely a global issue, and the situation is very, very complicated. There's no doubt that many of the regimes within the Middle East are engaging in their own proxy wars and using what's happening in Syria to propose their own agendas and interests. It's very, very difficult. Iran is one of those states. It has significant representation in uh, in Aleppo, for instance. It's viewing um, you know, the, the protection of the Shiite places, the protection of Shiite identity, Shiite religion, Shiite villages, and so on as a reflection of its own leadership aspirations within the region. It's very, very difficult and it's very, very hard. But the thing is, you know, as the left, we have certain views. We believe in the possibility of something better and we aspire to change the world so that it reflects what it could possibly be rather than what it is. It may seem impossible. If we break it down into these impossible structures, okay, well, Saudi Arabia is supporting this particular particular terrorist group and Iran is protecting this particular group and then there's a regime and then U.S. imperialism and then the Kurdish aspirations. And it, it's impossible, but I think we owe it to the people of Syria. We owe it to the people of the Middle East to make sure that there is a viable solution and this viable solution needs to come through dialogue and discussion. The alternative is uh, an ongoing conflict that continues to spread and basically brings about World War Four, and we can't afford to do this. Again, I repeat that the alternative is available to the, to, to the people of Syria. It's an alternative that the people of Syria themselves can accept. It's not an alternative such as the one in the United States where they went into um, uh, Iraq in 2003 and supposedly wanted to bring about regime change and supposedly wanted to bring about democratic change, which obviously didn't didn't occur and actually had the complete opposite effect uh, in the long term. Um, so I think there are alternatives available, but we need to believe that it's possible for us to produce a solution, and I believe that the solution is available to us. Well, I, I I agree with you. Although um, how we get to that point is uh, you know the subject of much debate. Um, before we before we go to the break, I just want to ask uh, this question as well. Um, one of the arguments that's put forward by those who uh, stand in defense of the Syrian government is that the Syrian government under Assad uh, defends the rights of women, it defends the rights of major- of, of minorities, it defends uh, secularism against what amounts to a hardline Islamic, uh, you know, uh, uh, system that would be imposed by those who seek its destruction. I mean, obviously that's a reductionistic uh, way of looking at it, and obviously it's more complex than that. But at a basic level, that is one of the central arguments that is made. And I just want to get your take as somebody who is in Syria, as somebody who describes yourself as a feminist and works with refugees. I mean, how do you view the framing of that narrative? Is that 
true? Is that false? Is it maybe partially true? And is that uh, maybe a distortion of the reality? Um, I'm going to tell you a story. Um, yesterday, I went to the Art and Culture Center. Uh, I'm currently traveling through the Zira Canton, and I'm in a little city about 20 to 30 minutes outside of Kamishli City. And I went to the Art and Culture Center um, to have an interview with the people who are running this Art and Culture Center. And I spoke to a music teacher, and I, I, we had a discussion about the nature of Kurdish identity and Kurdish cultural representation before, uh, during the period of the regime and post the revolution. And he said to me, look, you know, I was arrested three times by the Assad regime and I've spent about four years in jail. And my crime was that I wanted to preserve Kurdish culture and I wanted to be a music teacher and I wanted to keep on thinking in Kurdish. So I think this, the very, very simple answer is no, this was not true for many of the people who lived in the Assad regime. Now, I need to specify something. People could live under the Assad regime so long as they weren't political and so long as they didn't want democratization and gender equality and so on. So long as you became political, you attracted the, 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 the wrath of the regime. Now, the Kurdish people, not just the Kurdish people in the northern part of Syria and Rojava, but also Assyrians, Christians, Armenians, Yazidis, and the Turkmens, and other different ethnic and religious groups, were extremely oppressed. People could not speak Kurdish here. People were arrested for speaking Kurdish. Kurdishness was officially basically illegal. People did not even have identity cards. People could not name their children Kurdish names. You had to go to the government, local government office and have an, a, a, basically someone name your children in Arabic names. There was extreme violence and extreme repression towards the Kurdish people and towards other minorities. And this, is, this was during the period of the Assad regime. And the thing is, why did people rise up against Assad? Why did, why did they have this revolution occurring? Why were people protesting against Assad if the picture was so rosy, if there was secularism, if there was women's rights and and so on. The fact is, the Assad regime, very much similar to the Ba'athist regime in Iraq under Saddam, was extremely brutal. Not only that, another problem was that internally, uh, the majority of the Syrians here in, in Syria are actually Sunni Muslims. Uh, the government is being run by a very, very minority Alawite Shiite group, and they were extremely exclusionary towards other identities and groups, and this caused a lot of conflict. In relation to women's rights, women were allowed to participate in particular positions and laws, but Women in ethnic and religious groups, such as the Kurds, were not allowed to. People were not allowed. Previous to the regime, for instance, during the regime area, a place like Kobani City, only four women were allowed to go into the university. There was extreme um, prevention of access to education, to healthcare. There was actually a policy of underdevelopment towards the northern parts to keep the Kurdish people up. For example, I'm speaking obviously as a Kurd, so therefore I'm using the Kurdish example uh, significantly more. Um, there were the specific policies to keep them underdeveloped. For instance, there are no universities built or higher education institutions in the northern parts. There is no factory, there are no basically industrial areas in any part of the north, despite the fact that the northern parts of Syria actually produce about 70% of the agricultural output for the rest of Syria. So the people were basically laboring and toiling here on the land, producing the products and then sending it to the rest of Syria where it was refined and produced. So I think it's very, very problematic if people are saying the Assad regime was this rosy democratic utopia. It wasn't. It was extremely violent. It was extremely exclusionary towards particular identities. And it was advocating a classic nation-state model. One color, one nation, one language, one system, one ideology, and one perspective. And, you know, I think if, if we had the opportunity to, to, to hear the kind of stories that people are presenting here, you would be horrified by the level of violence that was being implemented towards people. I think we should be very worried. There are a significant amount of research and, and um, research that has been conducted 
highlighting the brutality of the Assad regime, just because the alternative is Assad regime as a secular model, uh, and, and or the opposition is this, you know, violent Islamist group, doesn't mean that either are alternative. Both are violent. Both have their own agendas. What I want genuinely, what I would like to see, is a democratic model where there is genuine gender liberation and inclusion. Under the Assad regime, there was a secular, secular uh, civic laws. However, under these secular civic laws, there was Sharia law implemented, where women were seen as half the equivalent of half, basically uh, half of men. Um, and there were some very, very religious values and Islamic values that were being implemented into uh, towards women's rights. And I think it's a very, it's, it's a huge stretch to say that women have their rights. Women were allowed certain rights to a certain extent, so long as they adhere to a particular practice, a very patriarchal practice. Gen, genuine gender liberation is where we create a society where women are equal, ideologically, politically, socially, culturally, um, and are accepted equally within society. But women were not equal within that particular society under the Assad regime. Women were selectively equal. And even then, certain types of women were equal. The kind of equality that Arab, particular types of Arab women um, experienced or enjoyed was barred from other women. Kurdish women, Assyrian women, Armenian women were prevented from some of these uh, some of these policies and laws. So I think it's very very problematic. I need to be we need to be very very critical of the kind of narrative that is being produced about Assad, and we need to understand why the uprisings occurred in 2011 and has continued until now. I think uh, anyone who advocates that one particular side is the true alternative with, with Assad or with the rebels or the Syrian opposition. Uh, needs to actually uh, do, conduct a little research. Well, you know, the, the the last thing I would just want to say on that, and then we have to jump to a break since we're over the time already, but, um, yeah. you know, is that a lot of the people who make that argument, it, it will frame it in the following way. They'll say, well, I don't necessarily love everything about the Assad government. I don't necessarily love everything that they've done historically. But in the context right now of a major war ongoing, I have to support the Assad government so that they can defeat the infiltrators, the, US, the, the foreign-backed mercenaries, the jihadis. Once they've done that, then we can move forward with reforming the system, with uh, expanding rights and so forth now that that argument which is uh, you know in many ways the argument that a lot of the people on the pro-assad side of the argument are making i find to be very flawed number one because it presumes that the war will end with a military yep. victory which i don't foresee at all i think if anything it will merely be a a you know a a military victory for the for the syrian arab army followed by years of low intensity guerrilla fighting and and uh, bloodshed that would go on and on seemingly, you know, into eternity. So that's number one. And then number two, of course, is, is, is this very fundamental question of whether or not we actually want to see any victory on this battlefield, because a victory on the battlefield is, is undeniably going to be a massive bloodletting, a massive bloodletting. Uh, the people who took up arms against the side that wins in any war end up being slaughtered. And I think that at this point, given the situation and given how many people's lives are at stake, I don't think that clamoring for a military victory of any kind for any side is something that anybody on the left should be doing. I agree with you, but unfortunately, as you said yourself, it's going to be a military solution. There's no way that in any shape or form that we can envision in the current situation 
that a solution is going to be proposed. It's always going to be a very, very bloody, bloody solution. I think it's very pro problematic, um, and I think you know, as the left, for us to see that supporting a violent dictatorship is the only solution to ending the current violence. It, this is very, very problematic, and I think we need to be a little bit more radical. I think we need to apply a little bit more imagination, and I think we need to be a little bit more daring in imagining an alternative that it doesn't implement that violent military solution. And again, I repeat that there is an alternative available to us. And I think part of the problem that this alternative is not really raised as much or is not being viewed as an alternative currently within the left is that there is continued ongoing ignorance about exactly what's going on in the northern part. You know, the northern part is actually one of the safest parts. It's one of the areas which is, despite the ongoing humanitarian embargo, towards Syria by the Turkish regime and the northern Iraq um, Kurdistan regional government, it's still, you know, it's surviving and it's struggling and it's something that the left should be much more interested in. Unfortunately, what the left is doing is choosing basically one evil over the other and considers the lesser evil as a solution. I mean, this is something that also was really um, very, very problematic and I think symbolic to us here in Syria and in the Middle East when we watched the elections that occurred recently in the United States. You know, who do we choose? Do we choose uh, Hillary Clinton or do we choose Trump? And the problem is that both of these solutions are, you know, both of them are evils in one way or another. It's just the, the type of evil that they implement is a little bit different. So which evil do you choose? And the discussions always choose the lesser evil. But what if we can imagine something different? What if this something different that we want to imagine already exists on the ground? So I think I want to challenge the left to be a little bit more revolutionary and a little bit more radical and actually try to see what's happening in the north because what's happened in the north is incredible. And I think they should spend a little less time determining which lesser evil they should choose and spending a little bit more time determining what kind of system is being implemented here and how this new alternative system can actually be the solution to a more peaceful resolution of the current conflict in, in Syria. I totally agree with that. Let's uh, let's pick up on the other side of the break. We're going to talk all about what's happening in northern Syria and uh, a whole lot to discuss there. So uh, stick with us. I am I am chatting with Hojin Aziz, uh, speaking from Kobani, Syria. We're talking all about um, you know all of these issues. And uh, please, we have so much more to discuss. Stick with us. We will be right back. Yeah. 
shreds are out of power Across our great wide ocean And Reagan's president-elect Fascist got in motion Generals tell them what to do Stop your good time dancing Train their guns on me and you Fascist tank advancing Sisters, brothers, lend a hand Increase our population Just grab that group and by the throat Throw it in the ocean You're real tonight, you move my soul Screws out on the dance wall Find out your house and dance your dance Shake that fascist group thing Shake it, brothers, brothers And we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Dr. Hojin Aziz. She is a, um, well, she is an activist. She is a researcher. She is based in Kobani, Syria for the time being. being. Uh, you should definitely follow her page on Facebook. It's an excellent resource, The Middle Eastern Feminist. You can also follow her on Twitter at H-A-W underscore Kurdy. That's K-U-R-D-Y. Um, so, Hojin, you know, we, we started before the break talking a bit about the situation in northern Syria and Rojava and um, why this is important as an alternative to either the uh, Assad government on the one hand or the rebels-slash-terrorists-slash-proxy forces on the other side. And so I want to I begin there, okay? So imagine you're speaking to somebody who really knows very little about the situation in Syria, knows very little about what's going on in northern Syria, uh, can we just start with a with a little bit of a background? What is democratic confederalism? What is what does that look like in its implementation, and how is it being implemented in Syria right now? Okay, well, <laughs> how do I even where do I even start? Yeah, I know that's a lot. Give it's me a, a lot very, to very ask. Yeah, that's a lot to ask. But um, you know, <laughs> if somebody if somebody said, "Well, what's Rojava?" How would okay. you respond? So uh, Rojava is um, uh, is a Kurdish term. Um, it basically means Western Kurdistan, and the Rojava came about because Kurdistan, or rather the Kurds, are an ethnic uh, entity that exists in the Middle East. And as a result of the implementation of the Sykes-Picot Agreement in the Middle East, uh, the, the region with which the Kurds occupy were divided into various different countries, such as Iraq or Syria, for instance. And so the Kurds were divided into four parts between Turkey, Iran, Iraq, and Syria. And uh, as a result of this fragmentation, the Kurdish people have always faced violent uh, policies and assimilation, ethnic cleansing and genocide. For example, my own family from northern Iraq, uh, which is we call Bashur, which is South Kurdistan, um, were survivors of the Anfal campaign, uh, the genocidal Anfal campaign and the uh, chemical bombardments that occurred in Halabza. So most, for most of us, uh, us Kurds, you know, some of these things that you guys are sitting in the West discussing about what's happening in the bombardments in Syria, the violence in Aleppo, for most of our, for us Kurds, this, is, this has been our daily reality. We faced and lived through genocide and massacres and violent assimilation policies. So Rojava is the area of Kurdistan which has fallen under the uh, Syrian government or Syrian territory. So what happened in Syria was that there were there was a leftist secular state. Uh, regime in place under the Assad regime, 
but unfortunately it wasn't so secular and it wasn't so democratic in this nation and, and many of the different ethnic and religious groups including the Kurds which are the largest minority basically um, in, in Syria were facing extensive violence and repression and prevention from expression of their ethnic and religious identities and values so this created a lot of um, tension within Syria of course in 2011 following the Arab Spring uprisings the people of Syria rose up against the regime which was violent and oppressive and uh, so the people in the north uh, had actually been trying to implement a particular system. This democratic system came about through the works of the Kurdish leader, Abdullah Ozalan, who is actually currently in jail in Turkey. Um, and he proposed democratic confederalism through his reading of um, uh, Mari Bukchin's uh, municipality, basically anarchist uh, values in relation to how to structure society. And so basically this concept of democratic confederalism was formed. And democratic confederalism has three major pillars three pillars. One of the first pillars is democratic socialism, another is gender equality, and another one is um, ecological sustainability within society. So we believe in order for a society to live democratically and freely, we need to have these three elements work together. Now keep in mind that the Kurdish people who have been separated across these four borders for a long time aspired to create their own Kurdistan. They wanted their own Kurdish state. For a very long time we were very nationalistic and we wanted to actually have uh, or defined our freedom in relation to actually having a physical entity that is called Kurdistan, a state of Kurdistan. But then what democratic confederalism did was basically threw that argument out the window and it said we need to redefine our understanding of freedom. And that freedom does not come through having a physical state because if we look at the state, if we look at the entities which are nation states within the Middle East, which are the most of most of them are artificial structures imposed as a result of colonialism and imperialism have caused significant amounts of violence and oppressions and wars and ongoing ethnic cleansing and genocide. A really great example of this is the Armenian genocide in 1915 that was implemented by the Turkish regime towards the Armenians and over a million Armenian people were massacred and slaughtered and erased. So the solution, Abdullah Ozalan said, is not to have another state because inevitably you produce the same violent exclusionary policies towards other minorities. We still we will continue to produce the same mentality of, of, um, of authoritarianism that states naturally have. Instead, what we can do is we can function and work within the boundaries of the states that we have. And instead of having states, what we can do is democrat democratize society. So the, uh, the aspiration is to bring or rather decentralize the power and authority of the state. And through this decentralizing, return power back to society. So implementing grassroots democracy through, for example, having street councils, local councils, neighborhood councils, uh, city councils, and then regional councils. So if you think of it, if you can visualize a web on the grassroots level, a web of people, a web of different councils, different organizations, different civil society groups that represent different interests and values and different ethnic and religious groups within society, produce this concept of democratic confederalism. Now, this concept of democracy cannot be implemented in the classic liberal democratic system that we have in places like America or United States and Australia, in, uh, sorry, in Canada and Australia. For example, myself, I, I grew up in Australia. And then we consider Australia to be one of the most democratic societies in the world. But the reality is very different for particular minorities. For Aboriginal and Indigenous communities, the reality is extremely different. And they are facing extremely, an extremely different economic and social situation where there's institutionalized racism and institutionalized exclusion of particular groups and interests. So this is not genuinely a democratic system because the majority rules the minority and implements policies to the detriment of the minority. 
Now, this is very, very important because what we want to do is disempower the majority and help to bring back some power and authority to the minorities. What we want is actually to learn from history as, as minorities in some of these societies who have experienced extensive violence and extensive oppressions. What we want to do is not repeat the same violent policies of the past. We don't want to create a state because as soon as we create a state, we immediately have people that say, no, we don't accept a Kurdish state. The Assyrians, for example, or the Armenians or different groups may rise up and say, we don't, we don't accept you. So therefore, inevitably, we have to resort to the use of force and violence to silence some of these groups. Instead, what if we could imagine a society where we come together and we go to these different ethnic and religious groups and we say, let's create a democratic system where you are able to represent your interests and we are able to represent our interests equally and genuinely within an organic democratic society. Now, let me give you an example of how this democratic system is being implemented and what we've attempted to do to make it more democratic. Now, initially, the world learned about the Kurdish issue through the conflict that occurred, the siege of Kobani. So in 2014, ISIS terrorists um, attempted to take over Kobani and there was a massive resistance by the people of Kobani and the people of, of Rojava, where the Kurdish people created the People's Protection Unit, the Yepaga, and the Women's Protection Unit, the Yepaja. And, you know, I mean, the whole world was watching what was happening in Kobani and it was a matter of any minute Kobani is going to fall, the terrorists are going to win, no, they're still resisting. And this epic resistance played out before our eyes and, and, and it succeeded. And Kobani was liberated on the 26th of January 2015 and it happened. So therefore, all of a sudden, we have these people's protection units of, developed by the Kurdish people in the north who are the majority ethnic group. Now, this obviously doesn't imply democracy. It creates a conflict in relation to democratization because the majority rules the minorities. So we thought, okay, the discussion is always around the Yepaga and Yepaja. What do we do to ensure that the Yepaga and the Yepaja do not become authoritarian? What can we do to create a democratic system? So one of the first things that they did is they created the Syrian Democratic Forces. Now, what that meant was the, the Kurdish leadership, the, the Yepaga and so on, went to the different ethnic religious groups such as the Assyrian people here. And they said, look, you need to create your own different, uh, your own self-protection units so that if there's a possibility tomorrow that the Yepaga and the Yepaja forces become authoritarian and become the, the next dictators in the system, you have the capacity to protect yourself. And even if it means that you have to protect yourself against us, then you need to create these self-protection units. So all of the different ethnic groups think have been encouraged to create their own protection units so that the, if there is conflict in the future, they have the capacity of self-defense and are, are not subjected to ethnic cleansing and violence. And so as a result of, of, of these different ethnic and religious groups who have come together and created their own self-protection units, we have created the Syrian Democratic Forces. And so, you know, it's also important to know that this is not a perfect system. Please don't think that I'm sitting here and I'm saying, this alternative is fantastic, it's contradiction-free, it's perfect, it's the only solution. I'm not saying this. I'm saying is, what I'm saying is that there is a solution happening here. There is a democratic system happening here. There is safety, peace, and security here. And people are engaging in genuine and free um, democratic discussions about the kind of system that they want to live in. Of course, this requires a lot of dialogue. An important element of this democratic system has been gender equality. Now, Abdullah Ozalan, through this democratic compartmentalism, says women are the first colonized society. Capitalism was a, a system that implemented and entrenched women's oppression and, and, and their subordinate role within society. So if we want a genuinely democratic society, we need to actually engage in uh, an active gender liberation and active gender equality. And this has occurred. This is occurring significantly. 
um, you know, I, I was in a place like Kobani, which is basically a predominantly Kurdish city. And you see the women, the, the Yafaja forces, and you see um, in, in a, uh, the Asaj forces, which is sort of the equivalent of the police force, but not the same kind of uh, power and authority system that, that exists within the police force. What they've created is for people to come together, and we call them Asaj, and people are actually trained, people within the community are trained to protect the system and protect the people and to actually work as a protection unit within society rather than as an authority unit that implements the same violent policies of the regime and the state on the people. I think this is something that is very, very problematic and is a very, very important question currently in the United States in relation to police brutality and police violence. And as a result, we have the Black Lives Matter movement, which is attempting to subvert these and attempting to gain some rights. So I think, you know, I think the United States can actually learn a little bit about the type of um, institutions that we have implemented here in Rojava and the kind of um, our view of authority, our view of power, and what we've done to decentralize state authority and power and give people the power and the capacity. So, for example, initially we created the police, these Asaj forces, and then we thought, no, this isn't promoting gender equality. What we need to do is actually create a women's Asaj force so that there's equality within society and that women can actually go to these Asaj forces and can actually address their problems. What we've attempted to do here as well is create women's health. Now, we live in a society which is very, very underdeveloped, and it's a society which has very low education levels. People were excluded. People, there are a significant number of population that still live in villages. It's a very heavily agriculture-based society. So we are not dealing with the level of development, with the level of awareness, the, the, the level of uh, institutional capacity that exists in more developed societies. So what we tried to do to support women's liberation and equality is created. we created the, the women's houses. And so the women's house is a safe place where women within the community can go. They can complain about issues. They can seek safety if there's domestic violence, if there's pressure to get married, you know, forced marriages, any kind of an issue related to a woman's life. She can go and seek help. Now, of course, we've also entrenched gender equality institutionally across the social contract that has been created. We believe that in order for us to bring about gender revolution and gender change, we can't just bring about legally. Okay, So we can't just have a constitution that says, Women are equal to men and, you know, all kinds of violence towards women are prohibited and so on. No, we believe that in order for us to bring about social progress and change, we need to do it across three levels. We need to do it legally. We need to do it socially, such as the women's houses, which actually engage in a lot of education and implement a lot of change and progress within society. We also need to do it military-wise. Now, what that has meant is that the women have their own self-protection unit, which is the Yepaja, and they're also... Uh, separated also into the women's Asaj forces, and we also have local neighborhood protection units, which also includes women. We believe that we cannot bring about genuine um, gender change and revolution if women are vulnerable to violence. So the women actually need to protect themselves militarily if it comes to the point where the men are going to implement violence. So we see this gender revolution in three very, very specific aspects. Let me give you an example, a personal example. Uh, one day I, I visited the local um, women's house in Kobani, and I, I was conducting an interview and we were having a dis discussion and an elderly woman walked in and she said, I want to, I, I, I want to complain against my husband. My husband has remarried. Now, legally, what has happened is that polygamy is outlawed here in, in northern Syria, in Rojava. Uh, forced marriages uh, is, is outlawed. Marriages where underage children are forced into marriage are also outlawed. There's a practice called practice of 
bride exchange, which is also outlawed. Uh, and so the women are implementing a lot of changes. So this woman comes in and in the context of all these social changes, comes in and says, I want to protest um, and I want to, um, I want to complain against my husband. He has remarried and you need to arrest him. And the woman can actually arrest, legally arrest a man who, who breaks one of these laws. So the woman in the, in the, in the woman's house said, okay, well, when did he get married? And she said, well, he hasn't, he hasn't married, but he's thinking of getting married. <laughs> and the woman, the woman in the woman's house said, well, look, you know, we can't just go and arrest him because he's thinking of getting married. We have to wait until he is married to another woman. Then we have evidence against him. And she said, oh, so I have to wait until he's married before I come back to you. And, and they said, yes, you have to wait. And she said, okay, well, I'll be back very soon. <laughs> and she walked out, stormed out. And so this was a very interesting example, you know, of, of the kind of changes that are occurring. In fact, during that time, that day where I was, you know, a few months ago, where I was visiting the woman's house, there were four cases of men who had married illegally, obviously now. And two of them had been arrested by the woman's asaish. And they were sitting in jail waiting, awaiting their court cases. And two were actually on the run from the woman <laughs> and were actually hiding from the woman who were looking for them and were very de determined to, to find them and were very determined to make sure that they face, that they face a full um, impact of the law uh, because they had obviously broken the law. So there's a lot of changes which are occurring. And I think uh, what's happening here is it's truly radical. We have all of these different ethnic groups who are coming together. Another example of the democratic system that is being implemented is actually a few days ago, uh, there was a very big discussion in relation to what we should name this, this uh, new system that we've implemented. And so the, uh, the governing uh, bodies came together and uh, the constituent assembly came together uh, yesterday and they were actually holding a two-day conference and they decided that they wanted to name this system. Now, there are three alternatives available to them, and since now we've been using the word Rojava. Rojava is a Kurdish term. And so there was a lot of discussions about what we should name this, and they collectively decided democratically that they would call this system Northern Syria Democratic Federal System, and they deliberately removed the name Rojava. Now, this is very, very important. What we're saying here is that we want to implement a plural democratic system that is genuinely organically democratic. Now, if we insist and we stay here and we insist on keeping the word Rojava, this is going to be very problematic because we're implementing and enforcing British identity over what's happening in the system. But we want to live pluralistically with one another and we cannot deny the existence of the other ethnic and religious groups. And unfortunately, we can't have the, the democratic federal system of Rojava slash Assyrian slash Turkmen slash Armenian slash Yazidi slash Arab system. So collectively, the decision was made that the most democratic system, the most democratic name would be the Northern Syria Democratic Federal System. So the Kurdish majority made a decision that they would adhere to the democratic aspirations of the region and would actually remove the Rojava term. So technically now it's North Syria Democratic Federal System. And, you know, there needs to be a lot of sacrifices. There needs to be a lot of discussions and there needs to be a lot of dialogue between the different ethnic and religious groups. Well, but I think what is, sorry, I'm let just, me just finish yes, up on, on yes, one note. Yes, I'm absolutely. terrible, sorry. What is really, really important is that we don't want to repeat the mistakes of the past. We don't want to repeat what is occurring currently in Iraq. When the 2003 invasion of Iraq occurred, it created a massive rupture within Iraq. And as a result, there has been significant Shiite and Sunni conflict and violence. I mean, a day or a week doesn't go by where there isn't some sort of a suicide bombing in Baghdad, for instance. 
So we didn't want to create a system where we implemented this kind of violence. We created a system where people were using these kind of violent policies and systems to represent themselves and what they wanted. We didn't want to implement the same violence and the same uh, oppressive practices where a lot of different ethnic and religious groups who have suddenly been liberated or suddenly have acquired a state implement towards other minorities and different religious groups. And so this has required sacrifice, this has required a lot of dialogue and discussion, it has required a lot of compromises. Um, if I have time, maybe I can give you a brief example, but perhaps we don't. No, um, no, no, go ahead, go right ahead. All right, so uh, uh, last year, uh, around October, when I when I came to to uh, work in the civilian side of things here, I, I went to a city which is about an hour away outside of Kobani city, and it's called, in, in Kurdish, it's called Gresbi, in Arabic, it's in uh, called Taladiyat, and I stayed one night um, with a family there before I traveled to Kobani, and um, I stayed with this Kurdish family, and Taladiyat had just been liberated from ISIS by the Kurdish forces, and Taladiyat had been under ISIS control for about two years, so I, I, we were staying, we were sitting there and we were having discussions about the liberation and so on and the political situation. And this woman, she, she went to the kitchen and she brought out coffee. And, uh, you know, it was about 11 o'clock at night and I had been traveling and I was extremely exhausted. And she offered me coffee and I said, no, no, thank you. You know, in my privileged little bubble, I said, uh, I don't drink caffeine at night because then I cannot sleep. And then she said, oh, um, I, I understand, you know, I was never a coffee drinker, but unfortunately since we came back, uh, Tel Abiyad had only been liberated about three months. She said that the situation is very precarious and we are actually very, very afraid. We are afraid that we know that some of the neighbors still support ISIS. And we are terrified that if we sleep, her husband, her and her husband would actually take turns each night staying up to make sure that nobody would actually come in and, and literally murder them in their sleep. Um, and so she, she, would, she would take coffee and she would sit up all night with her husband with a gun in her hand and basically look, you know, keep an eye on her seven children. And I was extremely shocked and I, and I yeah, I asked her, I said, what is the situation here? And she said, it's very, very difficult to determine who is supporting ISIS and who is genuinely oppressed by the community. Some people genuinely supported ISIS and accepted them as a legitimate force and a legitimate regime. And some people were deeply oppressed by them. She said that, you know, once we came back, because when ISIS entered Tel Abiyad, there was a call made that all of the Kurds had to evacuate, but all of the Arab communities, the majority of them stayed under the regime. So when the Kurds left, their properties were confiscated by some of the Arab communities. And she said, you know, we have family members whose houses and whose, you know, agricultural material and so on has been confiscated by their very neighbors. And I said, well, this is very problematic and unjust. Why don't you, now that we have this democratic system, go and, and retake your items and, and seek, you know, repatriation? And she said, no, you know, none of these material things, none of it matters, so long as we ensure that a democratic system exists here. If we go back and we take these items back from them, then the cycle of violence continues. Then they come back for their material, we go back for our material and, and resources and so on, and the conflict continues. We don't want to repeat this. Let these material items go. What matters and what is most important is that we live democratically with one another and we are safe with one another. And in order for us to do this, we need to make sacrifices and we need to make compromises. So I'm willing to make these compromises in order for this democratic system to succeed here so that my children have a future in, in this city. So these are some of the examples that I'm, you know, that, that you experience within the community. There are, it's, I'm not saying it's easy. It's extremely difficult. There's a lot of compromises being made. And I think it's incredible that the people are actually engaging in genuine dialogue. It's amazing what people are capable of if given the opportunity. And I think the left needs to remember this, that we are capable of producing the kind of society, the ideal society that we want today, not 10 years from now, 
not when Assad and the rebels have figured things out, not, you know, choosing a lesser evil over another violent evil, but right here today, right now, we can have alternatives. Yeah, very interesting. Now, uh, in 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 response to some of the things that you were saying, I wanna, I, I would like to articulate, if I could, some of the uh, charges and or arguments I've heard about the Kurdish forces. Um, so let me just let me just put these out there, and I want to give you a chance to respond to them because these actually come from uh, both sides of the conflict. The pro-Assad side has made allegations about, oh, actually both sides have, allegations that the Kurdish forces uh, have at various times forcibly displaced non Kurdish populations in areas that they have militarily uh, triumphed, uh, in particular through the attempt to, uh, you know, quote unquote, consolidate the uh, territory of Rojava that that Assyrians and other groups have been forced from their homes, forced from their lands, etc. Um, so this is a charge that we have seen over and over again, actually, from a number of different places. And I want to get your take on that. Is the is this? Uh, something that maybe happened but is an oversimplification or is there something to it or is it something to completely debunk uh what is your reading on some of those charges uh first of all i just want to clarify that i work on the civilian side of things and i'm not speaking for the yepaga forces or the syrian democratic forces in, in on an official capacity so i just need to preface that sure. i think we need to look at the context i think when we look at some of these military forces you know we've seen the syrian democratic forces which have been very professional in some regards which are very very successful and which have managed something incredible which is push back and actually uh you know destroy isis basically and I think there's a tendency that when the Western people and groups look at a, an institution or a group like the Yepaga, they compare it to other institutions like the American military. This is this comparison cannot be made. It's an extremely unfair comparison because this military, the Yepaga, erupts. It's a militia. It's not even a military unit. It's a militia and it consists of average everyday people in the villages and the cities who were forced to protect themselves as a result of some of the violent terrorist groups such as ISIS uh, who were attacking them. So I think, first of all, we need to preface the cultural and religious and, uh, you know, the, the setting here, the social setting here within Rojava. Many of them barely had any sort of military training. Most of them just have physical military training. If we had a proper state and we had an actual military, they would be able to be trained in specific ways. They would have access to cultural sensitivity issues, for instance. They would learn particular practices. They would learn about international law, for instance, and that you don't implement particular practices, that there are rules such as, you know, when you apprehend the opposition, you treat them as, um, as uh, according to international norms and so on, according to international human rights and so on. So I think we need to preface this discussion with this, with this context. And I think what we are seeing is that um, we have people who have lived in communities who have been extremely oppressed. You know, imagine you are living in a village and you are, your family, your father's taken away by the Assad regime. Your uh, complete and entire village has been displaced because an Arab family and community have come in through the Arabization policies of the regime. And then all of a sudden you're living with this community for 20 to 30 years side by side. You are unable to represent your culture and your identity. Suddenly you are free. Are there internal tensions between the different ethnic and religious groups? Yes, there are. It's a representation of the cultural and historical context that have existed as a representation of the fact that certain groups were excluded from power and resources and some weren't. So there is a lot of tension, there's a lot of racism, there's a lot of conflict. Does this mean that there have been instances where uh, there have been 
violence towards particular groups? I, I would imagine that it has. I would imagine that it has. The, the Yepaga has officially said that it has engaged in removal of different groups or different villages because of security reasons. If you understand the context of the military situation here, many of these lands, many of these areas and villages and cities were under ISIS control. And some people, some segments within society accepted ISIS. Some were forced to accept ISIS, of course. But it's very difficult to determine who is who. And sometimes military decisions were made to evacuate particular, particular villages in order to maintain security positions. Now, this is something that all militaries do, and it's not something endemic of, of the Yepaga specifically. But I think what is more telling is that why isn't there, you know, if this kind of level of violence occurring? Why isn't there more discussion about this? Where is the evidence? If we are going about, you know, completely wiping out people, completely wiping out entire villages, there would be more evidence. There would be more discussion. And I guarantee you the international media uh, and the Western media is very, very much against the Kurdish identity and the Kurdish representation of what they're attempting to do here. So if there was significant evidence, it would definitely come to light. But it isn't. People are actually sitting here and having and engaging in discussions and dialogue about democracy. And this is the focus that needs to be really the attention that really generates a lot more attention, which it didn't. So the discussion is very complex. I think if these kind of things have happened, then the Yepaga should face the proper legal mechanisms and so on and should engage in proper dialogue about what's happening. But we've also seen significant images of the Yepaga also, you know, treating ISIS forces and other terrorist groups and organizations and civilians extremely, extremely well. And I think if this wasn't the case, then there would be a lot more contention, there would be a lot more resistance, there would be a lot more suicide attacks and bombs. Um, I'm going to give you another example of this. In 2014, the uh, ISIS uh, terrorist group came to a city called Hasaka. It's in the southern parts of um, the, near the Zira Canton. And they told the Yepaga in 2014, if you allow us access to the Christian communities within Kamishla city, if you allow us 24 hours of uh, basically for us to do whatever we want to do within the Christian community, we promise you in exchange that we will not attack Kamishla city and that you can keep Kamishla city. So basically what they were saying, let's have some sort of a trade-off where we go into the Christian communities and basically engage in a massacre, rape and pillage and beheading of the civilians. This was obviously not acceptable. There's an ideology here, an ideology of humanity, an ideology of democracy, an ideology of gender liberation. And this is very, very important. This isn't just empty rhetoric. This isn't an empty, it's some sort of a, a ruse that, has come, that we have come up in order for us to pull the wool over people's lives. There is genuine democratization happening here. And of course, within this unit, we have the women's protection unit. So if there's any sort of an oppression towards women, the Yepaja actually legally and security-wise have the capacity to resist against the Yepaja, against the male forces within the Syrian democratic forces to protect women, for instance. So there are mechanisms and practices in place to ensure that the Yepaga and all of these other different ethnic and religious militia groups are actually implementing democratic and humanitarian laws within this system. Are there instances where there's kind of there's been some sort of a violence towards community? Of course. Why? Because essentially any sort of a military system is going to, at some point, inevitably, accidentally or deliberately implement some sort of a violence towards uh, innocent civilians and communities. But if this is happening, there should be genuine evidence, there should be genuine discussion, there should be genuine reform within the police protection unit, and they should be able to actually implement, implement some sort of, a, um, you know, address these problems. And, and, and if there are crimes being committed, they should deal with it. It should be dealt with uh, and, and addressed properly and through the proper mechanisms. One of the other problems um, that I've seen in, in some of the narrative about the Kurds is, and this is um, 
particularly true, I think, of the uh, side that is supportive of Assad and the Syrian government is this narrative, which I which I find to be uh, so abhorrent that the Kurds are really little more than uh, pawns and puppets of the United States. And one of the one of the reasons why they well, there's a couple of reasons. One reason is because uh, the uh, the democratic forces and the and the Kurdish forces that they have had at various times uh, air support from U.S. military and that they have benefited from that and that that then therefore makes them essentially a proxy of the United States. The other the other side of this that I think is also quite telling about how little people understand the Kurdish situation is that they'll point to the Kurds of uh, northern Iraq and say, you see, the Kurds are pawns of the United States, obviously not making the distinction that the uh, the, the Barzani and Talibani clans in Iraq are very, very different from the Kurds in Syria and very different from the Kurds in Turkey, and that the relations between these, uh, these I guess you could say ethnically, uh, you know, ethnic relations, but national cousins or something like that, uh, that the relations are complex. And so I want to get your take on, on this narrative. The Kurds as proxies of the United States, the Kurds as a force to disintegrate the Syrian state, uh, in other words, the Kurds as basically a Trojan horse for the U.S. and the dismantling of Syria as an independent and sovereign nation state. Uh, so give me your give me your response to that, because uh, sadly, that's actually quite common uh, narrative. I think uh, we need to look at it from this context. Um, you know, when we say the Kurds, this is a very, very reductionist term that is used to uh, reduce what is happening here and some of the different interests and some of the different issues of a very, very complex situation. We don't see ourselves as just a Kurds. We see ourselves as a democratic federal system of northern Syria. What this means is that there's an ideology here. We are not just blindly following our ethnic interest. We have demonstrated consistently that our main predominant interest is democratization and the capacity of the different ethnic and religious groups to live peacefully with one another. And if this means, for example, that we remove the, remove the term Rojava, which, which represents our Kurdish identity, then we are willing to do this. And I want to give you an example of this. For example, I know a family in Kobani that have about 17 people in their extended family who have fought and been killed as a result of this conflict and as a result of trying to resist ISIS and trying to implement this democratic model here in North Syria. So when we say the Kurds, we are actually ignoring something very, very important here and that the ideology of democratic confederalism, a democratic confederalism which is against imperialism, against violent capitalism, which are concepts which are diametrically opposed to the identity of the United States and who the United States wants to be and who the United States wants the Kurds to be here in Rojava, as opposed to the Kurds in Bashur who have adopted very neoliberal um, capitalist practices and who are much more aligned, closely aligned with the United States. I think something that the left needs to remember is that the survival mechanism that oppressed and colonized groups implement in order for them to survive another day cannot be criticized by privileged, you know, leftists, so-called leftists, sitting in the safety and security of America and the West and Europe and who are pointing fingers at situations and people and different ethnic and religious groups trying to physically survive here. I think the left needs to remember in the West at least, remember its privileges and needs to remember that it needs to allow oppressed and marginalized and colonized communities to engage in practices that allows them to survive another day on the ground here. And let's make no mistake, 
the situation here is very, very difficult. It's very precarious. Uh, at any any particular time, this entire system could collapse, of course, on itself. So what we're attempting to do is ensure that this democratic system survives, ensure that the people who are in the northern parts of Syria live in safety and peace and security. Have there been a ground cover by the United States uh, in support of some of, 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 for example, when Kobani was uh, under siege? Yes, there has been. Does this mean that we are ideologically aligned and support the United States? Of course we don't. We do not under any shape or concern support what the United States has been doing in the Middle East. And we are very much opposed to some of the imperialist and capitalist policies um, that the United States represents and implements on us. I mean, really, one of the major reasons we are, we are in this current situation, one of the major reasons why our people are massacred, and we have families in Kobani who have had 17 members fight for the liberation of this land and have been killed and shed their blood here is because of the policies, imperialist and capitalist policies of the United States. Who created ISIS? Who was the reason that created ISIS? It was the United States and their incompetence and absolute failure in Iraq in 2003 and that horrible, horrible invasion that they named liberation of Iraq or some, some acronym along those lines. And so we are, what we are experiencing here, the everyday violations and oppressions that we experience here across Greater Kurdistan is as a result of American imperialist policies. If we look at what's been happening to the Kurds in Baku, in, in uh, northern Kurdistan, in Turkey, and the ongoing silence of the international community, the ongoing silence and continued support of the United States for the violent and brutal Turkish regime, we cannot in any way, shape, or form be aligned with such a regime. Do we need military support? Yes, we do, in order for us to be able to keep the system here. Are we forced to make particular short-term alliances today so that we can survive and be here tomorrow? Yes, we have to. Again, it's about survival mechanisms, temporary alliances. I wouldn't even say alliances, really. Um, at the time when, for example, ISIS was attacking Kobani, the people in Kobani, the farmers, uh, you know, the, the teachers and the nurses who were fighting against ISIS were fighting with Kalashnikovs that were sticky taped together. We didn't have any military needs, and yet we were fighting because we believed that we wanted to preserve the democratic model that was being implemented in, in Kobani before ISIS attacked. So when nobody was providing any military arms, and keep in mind all of the Kurds all of, were doing a lot of lobbying, we were on the streets protesting, we were calling for our different governments in Europe, uh, Australia, Canada and the United States to arm the Kurds so they could protect themselves, so there wouldn't be a massacre and there wouldn't be a genocide, and nobody was hearing this. Finally, after much pressure and much campaigning, we received some sort of uh, air cover that allowed the Kurdish forces on the ground to have some breathing space to be able to push out ISIS. Does this mean that just because there was some temporary uh, air cover that suddenly we are, you know, the cronies and we are the lackeys of the United States. No, I think this is very reductionist. I think this Absolutely. is very insulting. Yes. Extremely ignorant of the, the reality of the Kurdish people, the history of the Kurdish people and the kind of resistance and the struggle that we are currently engaging in here in, in North Syria, in, in Rojava. Well, and one of the, I think, one of the key sort of giveaways that that kind of analysis is not really analysis, but just really kind of empty sloganeering is the fact that the Kurds have had have made inroads, or rather the representatives of the Syrian Kurds have made inroads both with the U.S. and with Russia, and at various times have allied with either one when when the interests have dictated it, and I think that that is obviously really 
kind of points to what you were saying earlier about, I mean, it's about survival. And, you know, obviously, you know, we have a long, we have a long history of, um, you know, leftist movements and guerrilla organizations and stuff that have made alliances with, you know, very, uh, uh, you know, diametrically opposed forces throughout the course of the Cold War, for example. And, and you know, we could point to many other examples of that. So I, I appreciate, of course, your the response that you gave there. Now, the question I have for you, though, I guess is sort of going off of that, though, how much understanding uh, on the ground in Kobani and in Rojava generally, how much understanding is there about the way in which the various powers internationally are trying to use the Kurdish uh, struggle and the Kurdish uh, situation in the north of Syria for their own agendas? I mean, obviously there must be some understanding of that, but how deeply rooted is that on the street? Okay, Eric, let me give you another example of my, my personal experiences. Um, there is a, a umbrella women's organization called the Congresta. And the Congresta is responsible for implementing democratization and gender equality within society, within North Syria, within the system. And so they engage in a lot of educational programs, you know, education programs about civic responsibility, what democracy means, uh, what we can do to actually maintain our system, what we can do about the huge flow of refugees flowing out of Syria into Europe and so on. One day I actually went and joined one of these um, educational seminars that were being held by the Congresta in Kobani. I was invited, so I went and sat down, and in the room, there were, you know, a lot of women who were 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 year old. And the discussion of that particular topic in that day was, what is war? And I was blown away because, you know, I, I, I had been teaching in Australia in a university. I, I, you know, I was basically a lecturer, and I've engaged in a lot of discussions. I've had, you know, students who've sat, and they've engaged in very deep political discussions with me. So I was a little bit confused because I thought, wow, this is an extremely ideological and political discussion to be had in this room. And I was blown away by the quality of the kind of discussions that were being had. A 90-year-old woman stood up and she said, we need to resist American imperialism and we need to ensure that capitalism is reduced in its capacity here in Kobani. And there were a lot of discussions and specific examples. And uh, others stood up and they said, you know, the, the humanitarian corridor and the prevention of our access to resources in Bakur of Kurdistan, for example, should not be choking us. We should be independent of these borders. We should survive despite an if whether the borders are open or not. It shouldn't make any difference if we have access to other borders and other states and the Bakur of Kurdistan, north of Kurdistan. We should be able to struggle here on our land and we should be so self-sufficient that we do not need any of these borders. And like I said, I was blown away by some of this discussion because these women, these 80 and 90 year old women were illiterate. They had never actually been in a the classroom. They didn't, wouldn't be even be able to write their own names. And yet they were engaging in very complex, deep political and ideological discussions. So I think the people here on the ground are very informed about what is going on. They're following very, very closely because it imp impacts their lives. It's not something that is happening, uh, you know, in, in some foreign land that they can barely even find on a map. It's happening in their neighborhood. Their children are members of the Yepago, the Yepago or the uh, Their entire family has been uprooted. They've lost their family homes. They are living in camps and refugee camps and so on. So it really impacts their lives. It's something that impacts them every single day. So there's a lot of awareness and there's a lot of wariness about the way that different states and regimes are using the Kurdish situation here to um, basically create their own propaganda and, and you know, um, propose their own particular interests. There's a lot of wariness and I think there's a lot of anger and resentment internally within Kurdistan because we know that we've been betrayed and used consistently. 
So we are adamant and determined that we're not going to be used by any particular force, whether it's Russia, United States, Iran, or so on. And that conversely, we actually convert, you know, uh, revert this around, and that we actually use them selectively in order for us to continue to exist here. So this is one of the ideologies that once across North Syria, across the Kurdish mentality and, and ideology, we need to be extremely careful that we do not, we are not used as pawns by some of these imperialist regimes. It doesn't matter whether it's United States, it doesn't matter whether it's, whether it's Russia, we need to be extremely careful and we need to propose our own agenda, but not for nationalistic interests, not so that we survive to the detriment of other different ethnic and religious groups, but that we survive here so that this democratic system, this gender equal and ecologically sustainable society exists, because now now, it's not just Kurdishness that's our identity, it's democratic confederalism that's part of our identity, it's who we are, it's who the blood of our martyrs and the people that have, you know, the 18-year-olds and the 19-year-olds that join these forces to protect this system and to protect this land have died for. So it's very, very personal for us, it's not something that we feel disconnected, it feels very, very emotional, it feels like part of our identity, it's something that is an existential crisis for us. So we are deeply committed to making sure that this democratic system survives. And if this means that there are temporary alliances made with certain groups and organizations and institutions, we will do so. But we always remember our history. We always remember the history of betrayal. And I don't think we're going to be pawns of any, anyone anytime soon. Well, I think that's beautifully said. The last question I have um, is, is um, about the future. Because right now we're seeing, uh, really in Syria, the political ground shifts almost quite almost literally every day or every week, you know, and um, right now we've seen a significant rapprochement between the Erdogan government in Turkey and Putin's government in, in Russia. And the question I have then is, if this ceasefire was really put, put through, you know, or brought to fruition by those two uh, in collaboration with, you know, some other some other elements there, the fear I have is that there, that with Donald Trump as president, that uh, the U.S., Russia, Turkey, uh, that they come to an understanding about what's happening in Syria and more or less, I mean, maybe not end the war, but more or less wind down at least some of the intensity of the war. And that then raises the question, does that mean that Russia, in order to achieve its goal of propping up a client regime in Damascus, will it then give carte blanche to the Turks to destroy the Kur what, what the Kurds are building in northern Syria? I think that this is really the burning question for 2017. How will Erdogan target the Kurds in Syria, given the changes in the politics? I think in order for us to understand how we can respond to this question, we need to look back in history. In history, the Iran regime has always been in conflict with the Turkish regime, but they've always aligned together when it came to the Kurdish question. And all of these different regimes, however, uh, you know, oppose some of their views and self-interest, national self-interest and security interests maybe, they always come together when it comes to the Kurdish question. They are always willing to oppress the Kurds and even eliminate the Kurds, even if it needs to be ethnic cleansing or genocide in order for them to achieve their own self-interest. And what works for them is the ongoing and continued international silence about the kind of massacres that are happening here. The Erdogan regime has implemented significant massacres, has used its tanks and air, air power to actually bombard civilians and bombard cities, and yet the international media has been consistently and completely silent about this. So they know that if they were to attack Rojava or attack North Syria, they would, that the basically international media, the silence of the international community would be on their side. And this is something that is very, very problematic for us. 
I have no doubt that if it comes down to preserving their self-interest, that Russia will align with Turkey in order for them to collectively remove the Kurdish question and the Kurdish problem as they see it. Of course, this is an existentialist crisis for us. Um, we are attempting to develop our capacity in our military capacity because we believe and we know that this conflict at some point is going to emerge or the probability is significantly high. Um, it's very difficult to determine what happens. What we are trying to do in the meantime is um, reinforce our democratic processes here in the north and attempt to develop our self-protection capacity. If it comes down to it, I think Russia and, and, and Erdogan obviously have a much greater military capacity. So I think perhaps at the end of it, it really comes down to the international left and what the international left will do once and if this, this attack against the Kurds will happen. Will they stay silent as they have always been previously with Kurdish massacres and Kurdish genocide? Will they speak and be on the right side of history and support and, and speak up and come together and organize against the imperialism and the violence of the Russian and the Turkish state, no doubt supported by U.S. imperialism? Or will they, you know, will they do what they've always done, which is remain ineffective, remain conflicted and remain deeply divided? Um, it is yet to be seen. I, for one, have uh, reservations, but I, I feel hopeful. I feel hopeful and I believe in the capacity of people here to be able to to protect this system. Um, a lot of blood has been shed so that this system can survive. People believe in this system. This is an identity element. This is something that we truly believe in. And I think, uh, you know, if we look at history, if we look at the 1946 Mahabad Republic in uh, Kurdish, Kurdish parts of Iran, we don't want to be another Mahabad. We are willing to make compromises and we are willing to make sure that the system survives. Does this mean that compromises have to be made in the future? Perhaps. Um, but we are willing to do anything to make sure that we survive. And this is a basic human right that cannot be denied to any ethnic or religious group. Absolutely right. Well, we'll have to leave it there and just, uh, you know, obviously to say that um, I think that the responsibility of the left internationally, in particular in the West, is, of course, to support the Kurds, to support uh, their, you know, their their struggle to support self-determination and to support the building of truly democratic structures. I think that this is what we're allegedly all, uh, you know, working towards. And here you have in northern Syria uh, a group of people that are actually building it. So anything other than support is, I think, a betrayal. Um, so with that being said... Um, uh, Dr. Hajin Aziz, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Definitely, listeners, follow Hajin's work. Um, the Middle Eastern Feminist is a very important resource on Facebook. You can follow her there. Also on Twitter, at H-A-W underscore Kurdy. That's K-U-R-D-Y. H-A-W underscore K-U-R-D-Y. Hajin, thanks so much for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure, Eric. Thank you so, so much. And listeners, thank you as always always and I'll speak to you again next week.